Good afternoon. You're live with us at the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. I'm your host, Kingsley Kipuri. I've not been here for a couple of weeks, so extremely, extremely excited to be back. Um, Greg, how's been holding? How's how's the fort been while I've been away? We survived. We survived still here. It hasn't burnt down. I do come bearing gifts, right? So I found this out and I'm kind of excited. And if you know this, just pretend you don't know this. So do you know the thing when you're logging into a website and it says to make sure you're not a robot, you have to enter in the text on the left. You have to enter the text in. Yeah, of course. Did you know that was a way of not only confirming you're not a robot, but it's a way to capture data that, that computers can't read on their own. So they get human beings to basically capture data on massive, massive amount, massive scale. I don't quite understand. So basically the things on the left, if you, if you just look next time you're on it, they're a bit mis, mm. like disfigured. So that's often text from like old documents or streets, things that computers can't understand and digitize on their own. So we're essentially doing data processing yes. for these huge companies. Yes. How amazing is that? So it, it, it's actually sort of frustrating. <laughs> I feel like we should be getting paid. It or... serves as security and it's also a way to capture data. And that's not even it yet. The big kicker is right now, obviously, machines can't read it on their own. But when machines are able to read it, right, then, yeah, sure, it doesn't work as a safety feature anymore. But then that means all this ancient data that we can't digitize, we will then have the intelligence to digitize. So either way, we win. If the hackers hack it, we win. If they don't hack it, we're still secure. All right. Okay. That's my that's my little opening exciting spiel. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm gonna be dropping that gem for <laughs> next eight months before it gets around. Anyway, for those tuning in, if you want to hear more gems like that, you can tweet us on IDM Show ZA, and then I'll keep bringing the knowledge. For today's show, I'm gonna be talking about things that are a bit more interesting than than little things I stumble on in the internet in the middle of the night. We're gonna talk a bit about this this giant fascinating feature story that's that you might have seen on Daily Maverick and a collaboration with with the Chronicle called Bigger Than the Weather. And then this incredible story, and we've got the author in studio to to talk us through how these these massive pieces with that need a lot of investigation and a lot of digging through stuff, how they come to life and, and, and some of the details of that story. We're also going to talk about the Fees Must Fall protests that have, that have sort of re-erupted and the announcement from the Minister of Higher Education that we saw yesterday. And we're also going to talk about the, the, the 36 uh, psychiatric patients that we've seen die over the past three months. And, and Greg, Greg has been writing a bit about what's going on. Who are these people being moved? Why, why are we seeing you know, an average of 12 people dying on this for three months and what's, what's going on? Who's in charge? Who's responsible? And what's going on? And so, to begin, we'll be talking about this 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 long form, in depth article that I mentioned that's featured on the site, and we'll tweet the link. And it's by author Kevin Bloom. So we have him in studio, writer, journalist, and also contributor for the Daily Maverick. Kevin, welcome to the studio. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, it's been a while since we've had you, but it's any excuse to have you back. We love. We always love having oh, you. Oh, awesome. you guys are the best. <laughs> so, I mean, just just in reading this story, I remember when I first read it a couple of months ago, and I was just fascinated i mean we have this 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 boat that departed from cape town it didn't make it to its destination um and so we have families and three families of of the people who are on board um just looking for answers trying to find out what's going on where where are loved ones are they okay what's going on and 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 as they look for answers they just seem to be no one who's forthcoming and trying to close this for them it seemed like the regulatory regulatory authorities uh, responsible for things like this just don't seem that interested in finding the answers. Um, and it also seems to be this, what seems to be some kind of corporate fraud or cover up with this giant monopoly that seems to be responsible for all the, <laughs> sort of, sort of all yeah. the touring and, and sort of travel overseas, over the seas, you know, in the world. So I'm, mm. I'm, 
I'm curious before we even get into the details, how did this how did this story come to you in the first place? I was approached by the brother of of the skipper, uh Jeremy Savage and uh his his wife, his partner, uh Diane Savage. And they well Diane Kutzer as she, as she goes, she's actually also a well known music journalist. And they had been, you know, in this in this nightmare, in, in, in this nightmare created by the world's biggest tourism and leisure conglomerate, a 20 billion euro, euro a year company called Tui Group, which has 140 hotels worldwide, 13 ocean liners, um, five airlines, 76,000 global employees. Yes. And uh, one of their subsidiaries is called uh, Tui Marine. And Tui Marine is the world's biggest uh, yacht charter company. They have a couple of brands within there. Mm. Sunsail is one. The Moorings is another. And these are the guys that if you're in the Caribbean or uh, in the islands around uh, Phuket uh, in Thailand, you want to go on a big yacht, yacht charter, you, you hire the boat from them. So there's a, a boat building company in Cape Town called Robertson and Kane and they mm. make world class catamarans that service this industry and the best delivery skippers down in Cape Town make a living by taking these boats over the ocean from Cape Town to Phuket there used to be a lot more routes that these delivery skippers ran there used to be sort of a hundred delivery skippers mm. and some of them would sort of sail to the Caribbean um, and then there was the Phuket route. But in around 2009, when, uh, when the Tui Group bought out what was a, a smaller sort of local company, they started to shut down these delivery routes, the options for the skippers, and they would sail the boats across the ocean. So it, it eventually ended up that only the 10 best sort of delivery skippers okay. in South Africa still do these routes. But there's another very important context to understand here, and that is that if you didn't take the more dangerous route, you wouldn't get the job. One of the things that was difficult for me to establish, but I did establish it, and it, had we not established it, maybe there wouldn't have been a piece or maybe we could have run it and then we would have got sued mm. by the world's <laughs> biggest tourism and leisure conglomerate. And that wouldn't have been a great outcome. Yeah. But one of the things that needed to be established was that if these skippers didn't do the southern route, the southern ocean in cyclone season, that they wouldn't get the job. Because the question in the previous company there was no question. You would just never be sailing in the Southern Ocean mm. between November and April because that's where the cyclones came. So why were these guys in the Southern Ocean during cyclone season? Well, if you didn't do it, then you'd, the job would go to the next guy. So they knew that uh, they were taking on a risk. And they left uh, Cape Town Harbor 14th of December uh, 2014. On the 18th of January 2015 was when the last signal was received from the boat, satellite communication signal. And uh, one of the things that they were saying was that we're in real trouble here. There was a bit of swearing. There was like, we're effed by Murphy. We're in, you know, 110 knot winds. The waves are upwards of sort of 30 meters. And we're here in a, in a 13 meter boat. Um, the families 
on the 5th of February, started to get worried. And Savage's uh, wife, uh, Anthony Stewart, who was the captain, his sister-in-law, uh, Diana Kutzer, Diana Savage, started to phone around because she expected to hear from uh, from Anthony Stewart. Uh, I mean, from uh, 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 Anthony Murray. He was a fairly experienced. Like, this guy had 176,000 nautical miles in a catamaran. I mean, he knew what he was doing. He, he was one of the most experienced catamaran skippers in South Africa. Um, and uh, she starts calling around on the, uh, February the 5th, and she, and she establishes that he had been sailing for Tui Marine. And she calls up a woman by the name of Nikki Murison-Burt, who manages the sailors, uh, who, who says, yes, Anthony was sailing for us, but don't worry about it. Uh, maybe it's either a, uh, a, a wet satellite phone. These things happen from time to time. Just chill out. We'll call you in 24 hours. They don't call back in 24 hours. They don't call again. Uh, the next Monday, which is now February the 9th, uh, Diane J, uh, call again and like, you were going to get back to us. Uh, she says, don't worry, don't worry. Um, everything will be revealed. And this is the most critical thing. Everything will be revealed by the EPIRB. The EPIRB stands for Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. It's basically the mariner's equivalent of the aviator's black box. Okay. According to the Merchant Shipping Regulations and the Merchant Shipping Act of South Africa, every single ocean-going vessel that leaves these waters and goes into international waters mm. has to have one. If you don't have one, you're liable for a year in prison or a fine. And what Nicky Miris and Bert, what Tui Marines say to the families is everything's going to be revealed by the EPIRB. Okay, so whatever has happened when we locate whatever's that. Whatever's going to happen, the, yeah. you know, and, and, unless we're hearing an emergency signal from yeah. this box, then, fine. Then, then everything's fine. Don't worry about it. So the families are put at ease uh, until the next day or it was two days later where they were promised that there was going to be, you know, more correspondence and there wasn't. And Jeremy calls up. And he says, look, you said you were going to call us. Why didn't you? And allegedly, Nicky Murison-Burt says, well, do you want me to get on an effing helicopter and fly there? At which point, Jeremy's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here? I'm just calling you for information about my brother who's late, who was supposed to arrive in, Tuket, uh, in, in Phuket on the 2nd of February. It's now the 10th of February. You're not giving us answers. I demand. Yeah. Now you're coming back at me. I demand the flight plan, the exact date that they left the Cape Town Harbor, the exact date that they were supposed to land in Phuket. I want the MMSI number. I want the radio call sign. And I want the EPIRB registration number. I want it all. Nikki Murison Bert says, we'll get back to you tomorrow. She doesn't. Um, a letter uh, gets sent from, from, an email gets sent from Jay saying we're, we're, we're acknowledging this. She says, I'll, uh, I was off ill. I'll get it back to you the next day. The families do not meet a representative from Tui Marine. Now, this is February. Until April, which is when the International Vice President of Operations, a guy by the name of Peter Cochran, comes in with his lawyers and his lawyers represent him. There's no handshake across the table saying condolences for your loss. There is, don't speak to us, speak to our lawyers. Now, what's going on? And this is when the families start to get concerned. On the 15th of July, I think it was, SAMHSA, the South African Marine Safety Authority, this is our regulator. This, 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 is, a, this is a government body, 
releases the report into what happened. And it's the preliminary inquiry the, uh, report. And the preliminary inquiry report basically casts aspersions on the sailors. They say that the sailors should not have been sailing in the Southern Ocean at this time of year. And the weather router, who's back on shore, uh, on, on, on shore, um, looking at his uh, GPS. So it's a separate person communicating. It's a separate with the person, the okay. you know, and he's he's in Cape Town okay. and he's saying, well, "Guys, there's a there's a set, okay. there, there's a cyclone coming in," hmm. and he's giving them waypoints, okay. uh, coordinates in uh, to to avoid the hmm. cyclone. Um, and uh, a guy by the uh, by the name of Alan Brits, who works for SAMHSA and puts together this preliminary inquiry report, says it was the fault of uh, the skipper and the weather router. And no other, um, no other complicity exists. Now, that is an outright lie um, because the EPIRB wasn't registered. And I knew we had a story when I saw a uh, forged document on the EPIRB registration number. So if you just take us back a bit. So you told us the EPIRB is the equivalent of the, of the black box, it's basically. Black box. And there's a place where you should be able to go and know that this black box was on this, exactly. was on this ship, exactly. I imagine. Exactly. So how do you dig into that and how do you find out that it's forged? What, what happened in that? So ICASA, yeah. because this emits a radio signal, okay. the registration papers come through ICASA. And ICASA has to sign off on every single EPIRB that is registered. And um, initially in February, when the families asked for all the documentation, TUI refused to give it. Now on February the 12th, when the families were like, had realized mm. that TUI Marine weren't going to call a search and rescue for this yacht and that they'd have to call it themselves. So the family called the search and rescue themselves, not TUI Marine. Tui Marine released a press release saying that they called the search and rescue, another outright lie. The families called the, the search and rescue, and we have, I mean, the article has, Daily Maverick has, documentary evidence mm. of this. We, 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 we've got the evidence. One of the things that had to be released that the MRCC, the Marine Rescue Coordination Center, which is a division of SAMHSA, so now it, it, it now, they force Tui Marine to release all the documentation, mm. and one of the items of uh, one of the items there is the registration yeah. certificate for the EPIRB. And through a guy by the name of John Titterton, who's one of the, you know was even more experienced as a sailor and as a former delivery skipper for Tui Marine, then Anthony Murray starts looking at this documentation because the families had actually got hold of him to mm. help out with the radio call signs. He said, I think I can give you a bit more help. Can you show me the documentation? And he starts to see discrepancies between the numbers on, on the registration certificate. Um, I uh, met with him uh, in February this year, and we started going through this. And I'd already been given this by the families, but there was a, a piece of paper. It, it was basically a cut and paste. It, 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 was, it was a square piece of paper about, I don't know, four millimeters by four millimeters, where the registered name of the boat was, um, a, it was the Moorings A5130. But a 3-0 was stuck over the two numbers that had been there before. Or a different boat. That had been there before. 
and all of the other, the MMSI number, the radio call sign, all pointed to a boat by the name of the Moorings A5114, which had sort of been registered in 2014. So clearly what had gone on was that the EPIRB hadn't been registered and that the fact that these guys had gone down without a registered EPIRB meant that if they had gone down, the international rescue committees wouldn't have known what boat the signal came from. They wouldn't have known where to go and search. Within 24 to 48 hours of, a, of, a, of an emergency signal going out, that's your critical time. If you're going to find any life on board, and it's very possible there was life on board this boat. In fact, there's more evidence coming to light, and I'm going to be doing a follow-up. It seems as if there was life on board this boat. But you got 24 to 48 hours. It's, it's the responsibility of the company who owns the boat to call the search and rescue. They didn't call the search and rescue for 25 days. After 25 days, you're looking in the Southern Ocean for a boat that's 13 meters long, 100 square feet, an area the size of 2 million square nautical miles. You're not going to find it. You've got 24 to 48 hours. They knew. They knew that that EPIRB wasn't registered. I called Icasa in... Uh, it would have been in May this year, and I got a hold of a guy and I said, I'm just, I, I, I'm, I didn't tell him I was a journalist. I said, I'm looking to just find out the details on a boat by the name of the Moorings A5130. He has a look quickly. He says, uh, sorry, that, uh, that, that registration has been canceled. I go, what do you mean it's been canceled? He says, it's been canceled by the people on your side. I said to him, who are the people in, on, on, on my side? He said, Mariner Yachts. Mariner Yachts is the South African name for Tui Marine. So there's been cover-ups going on all the way through the story. There are, two things go, there, there are two cases going on here. The one is a very clear case of, of, uh, of, of culpable homicide, a clear case of culpable homicide. We've had advocates that have agreed with us. The other is a case for a public protector. Because what we essentially have is a South African regulatory body that has been taken over by the world's largest marine and leisure conglomerate, by the world's largest tourism conglomerate. It turns out that Tui Marine are SAMHSA's biggest clients, who's, who's putting in most of the sort of registration papers down in Cape Town. So we, we, we have a major story here. We have a major story. I'm just trying to think now. I mean, we have these families who are, I assume, you know, regular everyday individuals. They're, they're loved ones. I mean, it's September now, right? So yeah. I assume there's this, this feeling of great despair and loss. And they're facing up against these giant, you know, this giant company with no help from the regulator. So what, in terms of you coming into this as a journalist, are you, how do you balance this, this wanting, I assume, some kind of justice for the families? At the same time, trying to find some kind of truth in the middle of all this, how do you how do you balance those weighing sort of demands? It's a quest for truth, but also sort of a perhaps a, a desire to, to 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 for you to be the one to bring a, around a sense of justice and for the for the little guy in the story. Are, are those sort of different things that that play in your mind? And if so, how do you balance those? You know, had Tui Marine or Samsa yeah. been willing to to sit opposite the table with yeah. me. It would have been a very different story. 
I, I must have put in between those two uh, over a dozen requests. And I either got ignored or I got told to bugger off in, in no uncertain terms. Um, in, in order for there to, to be some sort of balance in a story, I mean, yeah. I, I think we all know at this, at, at this point in the evolution of the human species that objectivity doesn't really exist, not in journalism or anywhere else. But in order for there, for there to be some sort of balance, yeah. I would have, I would have needed to speak to representatives from Tui Marine or SAMHSA. So I, I, I do want justice in this story. We are being, um, this entire story is, is being justified on a range of levels. This is happening on a global level. In August, uh, a story came out in the BBC. A woman, an English woman by the name of Lynn Morgan had been looking for justice from Tui Marine for 13 years. And she finally got it in the British High Court. What had happened is that her daughter, who was uh, on a sailing holiday in Greece in 2003, had been killed when a, a, a Tui Marine vessel had sort of capsized. Okay. And um, there was a clear case of manslaughter. The Greek courts said manslaughter and awarded uh, 240,000 euro damages, which Tui Marine refused to pay. Time and again, Tui Marine did, did not engage with Lynn Morgan. They never spoke to her at all. And it was the same pattern. Eventually, after waiting 13 years, she got an undisclosed sum from a British court. And now it's gone away. I mean, this is what it's going to take. And, uh, you know, I mean, in a way, it's an Aaron Brockovich story. I'm interested, Kevin, in what's happened now for the families of the three people who died. Have there been any consequences since your story? Because it's a, what, seven, eight thousand word um, 10,000 word, yeah. 10,000 word piece, yeah. and it goes into a lot of detail, and it clearly paints out extremely strong allegations against the company. Has there been anything that's happened for these family members, or does it look likely that there might be any sort of consequences? Well, you know, there was stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of a, uh, a potential settlement. Hmm. And... The families, aside from, I mean, you know, they had all come to the conclusion that they wouldn't be able to live with hush money, with go-away money. Um, and they had asked for a sailing academy to be set up in the names of Anthony, Reg, and uh, and Jared, who were the three guys who had, who, who had gone down. Um, you know, just bear in mind that, uh, Jared Payne, uh, the, uh, the, the deckhand was 20 years old and this was his, his first ocean going, uh, you know, experience. And I, I mean, the families are properly devastated. Jared, Jared Payne's mother is devastated. All de- they're all devastated. They're all devastated. And instead of taking, you know, what, what, what they had, you know, perceived as hash money, what they wanted was, for a sailing academy to be set up in, in, in their names. And Tui Marine came back and said, great, we'll set up a sailing academy and we'll call it the SAMHSA Sailing Academy. They had asked for, I think it was in the region of 2 million rand. They had come back, they said, we'll give you 600,000 rand, but it'll be the SAMHSA Academy. Now, the problem with it being the SAMHSA Academy is, is, is hang on, guys. You know, this is the very same government regulator that is in your pocket. The same government regulator that issued the preliminary inquiry report saying that it's, uh, it's, it's Anthony's fault that this boat's gone down. There's been no acknowledgement of the fraud. And this isn't an allegation. This fraud is proved. 
I mean, had there been allegations, had there mm. just simply been allegations in that 10,000 word piece, Daily Maverick would be sued by now. I know. I've, I've, I've gotten feedback that the people on the other side are not happy at all with this article. At all. So, there's no, there's no engagement. And the legal battle at, at some point becomes, it becomes the long haul. I mean, you're, you're either going to go for the international class action where these clear cases of culpable homicide mm. come out and you're going to put pressure on the public protector. I mean, maybe this happens. Maybe our new public protector coming in and we know whose pocket she's in, but maybe this is a case that she can take on because it doesn't seem to have any political implications. If anything, it politically benefits, I think. Exactly. The ANC. Exactly. Bring, bring SAMHSA back from the international multinational. Bring it back. You know, let us have our regulator back. So these are all the um, these are all the variables in the story. Okay, um, we're gonna have to let you go soon. But just I think my 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 curiosity sort of leans towards um, the form of the article in terms of the the, the depth it goes into, um, and the and the you mentioned the ten thousand words and so on. And I'm curious as, as to whether you find that the the public is. Is receptive and has the kind of appetite for this, for this, this style and this kind of journalism in a way that pushes you perhaps to, to pursue more, more kinds of stories of these, like these or, or be more open to them when you think there might be something out there. Well, well, first of all, this, this kind of story is, 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 is my bread and butter. This is how I came up. You know, um, I, uh, long form narrative journalism, I've, I've, I've done a bit of and, and the, you know, it, it just seems like there, there, there are less and less opportunities to do it. But to write a 10,000 word piece that people read and that people stick with. Mm. And, and, and the stats on this piece were amazing. We, we got 4,600 shares within the first couple of days. It was sort of close to, I think, 30,000 individual reads within the first week. It did go international. Um, I got a lot of sort of radio play on it, a, a lot of feedback. And it, it takes, it takes crafting a story that, that the reader wants to be taken through. So, so, so narrative journalism is about using the devices of fiction to tell a story that's fundamentally true and, and setting out a sailing story. I mean, people want to read sailing stories. This is, this, this is simple. You know, I mean, you remember Reader's Digest when you're, you're that you, 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 you would read the story of the dude who was lost in the hurricane. That's the story you would read. You know, boy's own adventure. But here it is. And, and, and it's real and it happened. And I think everything that, uh, Branko and Stilly got on that side, uh, in, in terms of the stats would, would, would point to the fact that we need to do more of this. That we do need to be, yeah. Before, before we went on air, you were mentioning that you have a few ideas on your table and you're working on a few different things, some working out, some not. How do you decide which stories to take forward? Which elements do you need to spend this much time on a story to write these 10,000 words and hope it works out? You know, there's always the silver bullet. If, if, if you're not moving a, uh, a story forward, and, and, and the one story I've, uh, I've been working on is the Sydney Frankel story. 
and and this is the story of um the uh the huge businessman the guy who who ran the biggest um uh stockbroking trading firm in South Africa Frankel Pollock the guy on whose farm saw Ramaphosa met uh I think it was Rolf Meyer the guy who's on the he's still his name is still uh on the on the on the constitutional hill trust and is he's been accused uh and there's a court case of being a uh, a child molester of 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 being a pedophile and and I've interviewed I've I've probably got about 10 hours of interviews with uh, the 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 people well the, there were more but from the people who have gone on the record and who have attached themselves to the court case and who spoke to Carte Blanche and who spoke to 702. Now, in order to move that story forward, um, it could be that I would need a lot, that I would need a silver bullet. And I'm not even at the stage where I could mention what that silver bullet would be. I know what I'm looking for. But the, the power of this man locally has moved its tentacles throughout the Joburg society that I'm looking for answers from and they won't speak because they're scared. They're just very scared to speak. Um, and that leaves me in a position where, well, you know, I either write a piece using the knowledge that's already mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the public sphere and I just craft it in a separate way. Maybe I use that to speak about endemic rape in this country and the fact that rape doesn't discriminate according to class or gender or LSM. I mean, this is a guy who's in the upper echelons. The people who he abused were mostly in the upper echelons. Pedophilia and, and, and child rape in this country. I mean, we're lying to ourselves if we think this is a poor problem. It's not a poor problem. It's, it's an endemic South African problem and a major one. And maybe that's the story to write. Um, I haven't yet decided that it is, but I need to speak to Branko about it. But I've been looking for the silver bullet on this man, and it doesn't look like I'm going to get it. Okay. Kevin Bloom, thank you so much for making time for us um, and for the incredible, incredible story. And we really look forward to reading much more from you and, and, and hopefully seeing some justice for the families that you've, you know, you've been able to set some light on, on their story for them. So thank you so much. Until next time. Thank you, guys. It's always great to be here. I am a South African. I carry the hopes and dreams of my country and the generations to come. I know that it's not where I come from, but where I'm going to that really matters. At Sibanye, we believe the future of our country will be defined by our actions today, which is why we are committed to the development of our leaders. Sibanye, we are one. Visit us on sibanyegold.co.za. So T, do you know that we host motoring's biggest power hour? Yes, I do. And do you know that it's not just a show about cars, but it's a show that covers a host of relevant motoring topics? Yes, I do. And do you know that there are over 1 billion cars currently in use on Earth and that the new car smell is composed of over 50 volatile organic compounds? Uh, uh, no. Make sure you're up to speed with all things motoring by tuning in to Auto Central every Monday morning at 9 a.m. just after the Gareth Cliff Show or download the podcast on autotrader.co.za or Auto Central, motoring's biggest power hour, powered by Auto Trader. This is CliffCentral.com. Hello, you're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. Just jumping into the second portion of the show. Um, that was a very exciting fade out. A massive thank you to our new, our new producer, Palessa, on the ones and twos. 
Um, so we're going to switch tact a bit and, and talk a bit about, you know, a story that, you know, I think is fair to say has been dominating headlines in this country for at least the past year, maybe even 18 months. And that's about Fees Must Fall. Um, so last year we saw students from, you know, different campuses across the country. So there were different provinces, Eastern Cape, Western Cape, Hauteng, you know, and so on and so on. And coming together under this sort of wide banner of, of Fees Must Fall, of saying that, um, Education in this country had become, and higher education had become unaffordable, um, and that whether people were taking on debt or paying it themselves, that it was just, it was unaffordable, and that one way or another, that there had to be, there had to be some way for the government to come together and make a plan for free education or free higher education, and the climax of this was um, massive protests that went to the union buildings in Pretoria, and that's when the president on the, on the loudspeaker announced that there will be no percent, a zero percent increase for last year. Um, and that and that took a lot of the sort of momentum away from the from the build up of, of student protests that we'd seen up until that point. Um and a consistent theme across the different I think it's fair to say across the different universities was that that was a short term solution. Um sure it was helpful that they, they, they saved that extra call it eight percent, nine percent. Um but at at the same time that wasn't what they wanted, right? They did not want no increase, they wanted Zero percent fees, period. That's what they wanted. Fees must fall, no fees. Um, and so we've seen the reemergence this year. Um, and the, and the, I suppose if we're to map onto last year, the big climax was an announcement yesterday. So Greg, you wrote a bit about this and I'm curious as to, as you look as to what, as you look at what the, the Minister of Higher Education, the statement he made and the plan sort of he said that we'll be going into. If we just talk a bit about exactly what are the details of what he's proposing and perhaps some, you know, some of your thoughts on, on what's in there. So, yeah, yesterday speaking in Pretoria, Higher Education and Training Minister Bladen Zamande was, he spent quite a lot of time in introducing the announcement on what government would do with fees this year or what they would recommend. Um, he outlined what I think is a very difficult situation um, for almost all players involved. And mm. it's, it's, it's a situation where it's largely a stalemate because... On the one hand, we have students saying that, first of all, they want 0% fee increases for all students uh, for, for the 2017 academic year. Mm. Um, they also say that they want free higher education or at least steps to, um, to, to, to sort of, to reach that goal. Yeah. And of course, I think it's, I think we should, we should sort of mention the caveat that when we say students, there are obviously different student groupings and, and different interests across the different campuses um, um, across the country. But so on the other hand, the universities were saying that if if government allows the same situation as last year, where the state covered most, or it's this year actually, the state covered most of, of the planned fee increases um, at campuses across the country, We'll see a declining quality of, of education, um, at, at universities. We'll see, um, the failure to sort of, you know, keep up facilities, the failure to maintain, um, quality and professional staff, um, and the failure to, to, for universities to both improve and maintain their standards, um, as, as decent learning institutions, which would effectively mean students get you know, um, cheaper or, or, or more affordable, um, education, but probably, yeah. probably worse quality. quality. Yeah. And it could, it could lead to sort of a downward spiral. You know, if, if you lose some of your best academic staff to mm -hmm. perhaps, perhaps they go to other countries or Europe or America or something like yeah, that. Man, you don't publish research, you drop in the rankings and perhaps right. it just and, feeds on itself. And, and it can be a very difficult position to come back from. So, 
the universities were worried that that if the same situation stands from from last year's announcement, that that it could be a dire situation for them. And there's been some strong warnings from from university leaders across the year. Um, then from government side, they have obviously a fiscal and budgetary constraints. Um, we all know that the South African economy isn't really powering on as you know as many would hope, um, and and money and resources are tight, um, and there's already without these demands, government already has a difficult balancing act to to continue its its standard operations, and the national treasury had already said that they hadn't um, they hadn't budgeted. To do the same thing as last year mm. to cover these fee increases, so the minister was going into this press conference and he spent quite a lot of time just sort of framing that, framing it, and, and unpacking yeah. all these different aspects of it. Um, but I think in the end, he 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 well, what he sort of framed it as was he found a compromise. Um, he announced that, or he recommended that universities and TVET colleges for next year um, don't raise fees by anything above eight percent. So that means that universities or, you know, these campuses, some of them say they want more, but, um, will, you know, get some sort of funding increase specifically just that's inflation or, or there's a, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a formula to work out what, um, inflation is at like higher education institutions. And so it's higher than the, the average CPI. Mm-hmm. So it comes to about just under 8%. So that's where they got the 8% figure from. So at least these, um, these institutions will be able to cover costs, just in, the increasing costs yeah. from this year. But um, the caveat on that is that he said, I think it's all NASFA students won't have to pay any of the increase. And then also there's all – he's tried to address the missing middle as well. So if you're a student and you come from a family that you have a household income that's 600,000 rand or less yeah. per annum, then you're also exempt from these fee increases. His his framing of it was that we need to protect um, and take care of the poor and middle class students who would and can be excluded by these by these high high and increasing mm. costs. And he he showed sympathy for some of the students, you know, struggling just to cope and, and stay at university um, under, under these cost pressures. Um, and they said that so with this with Na- the NASFA students and what their attempts to cover this missing middle. Um, the government's, the department's prediction is that it will cover between 70 and 80% of all undergraduate students across the country. Um, the last, I guess, you know, 20 to 30%, he said, Inzamande said, these are the rich students. There's no reason government should be paying for, for wealthy students mm. in a country defined by a high inequality. Yeah. Um, why, why should we give the richest a break? Why, why do the, you know, the, the 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 very wealthiest kids why like last year should government pay for their fee increases yeah. when they can cover it for themselves yeah. and arguably obviously there's a whole um discussion in here on on perhaps historically privileged people and the extra costs that they should have to pay going mm. forward mm. uh to to try to address or rectify this very unequal society that we live in so that was basically the announcement <laughs> yesterday. Nutshell, yeah. <laughs> now, when I when I was you know when I first saw this, I mean, I mean, first even just going to the announcement, I was out of the right word is sympathy, but putting in myself in the Ministry of Higher Education's shoes, I felt like he just had no. I feel like he had no moves to play, so to speak. And you know, if it, in in a chess perspective, there was just no moves to play. In that he has 
I mean, it's well known that the relationship between the president and him and the ANC and the SACP, which is the party that he he's he's a part of, that that's that's a very tense relationship. So I take that to assume that he doesn't have massive political backing and massive political goodwill to put together some kind of mass national governmental plan to institute something as 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 giant as free education, even if it's free education in in five years or free education in ten years. Um, I would see that as needing to be a really big government project that everybody comes together and makes a plan for. And for me, for that, you need you need networks, you need goodwill, you need backing. And I see him as not having that. I think you also need time, and that's <laughs> that's one of the key problems as well. Where um, students have been demanding free education, and Inzamind has continually replied that um, we should never have free education for the rich, but maybe we could look at ways to have free education for the poor. In, in, in some time but the future, but yeah. I think one of the key, key issues is that since the protests last year, um, government and ANC's commitment to investigating free uh, the possibility of free higher education, I think has been sort of slow at best. President Zuma initiated a commission of inquiry to look at the feasibility of free education. So there have been all these different proposals um, from you know, all stakeholders involved as to how, you know, how we could, if possible, implement or... Yeah. or, or how might we do it? Yeah. yeah. But that commission kicked off, you know, quite recently. It hasn't been around for that long. Um, it's still sitting, you know, as commissions of inquiries yeah. do. It takes time. And I don't think students are happy enough to wait around for a commission of inquiry when we know from so many other commission of inquiries that they take forever and often little is done yeah. as a result of their recommendations or even even what is done will also take a very long time. And so I think that with those political constraints, um, with the time constraints and perhaps without the the adequate urgency from some of um, um, our political leaders, it's added to this stalemate position or this checkmate position that we have here. Absolutely. I mean, and I want to talk a bit about something else quickly, but just before that, I'm, um, um, and we, we spoke with Kevin Bloom a bit about this off the mic, or just the, the issue of security. So it's not, it's not directly linked to, to affordability and free education, but we're having a massive issue of, of, of what students are, are claiming of a massive show of force by, by the SAPS at a lot of these universities, as well as this unclear, murky role of private security. And it's not always clear, are they here to protect students? Are they here to protect the physical structures? And, and who, who are they reporting to? And, and there seems to be a hardening of the position of students, if I dare say, a hardening of their position because of them feeling very attacked by people who one might argue are there to protect them. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I would hesitate to talk on behalf yeah. of students personally from my, my side because I haven't been at least around some of the campuses yeah, not, today not where um, where we've seen seen protests you know flare up again and, and these confrontations take place. But from from the past reporting I've done on some of these situations, I think, I think you're right. The the issue of policing and private security in these protests, I think, is extremely important because what we've seen is you can get these, you know, what start out as peaceful protests, or maybe you know, maybe students yelling some things or, or doing stuff, but but no violence or whatever, mm. like no no physical violence, right? And then you get private security just stopping people from trying to go where they want to go um and that's that's most campuses have, or many campuses have had private security like uj um throughout this whole period yeah. where you know just going onto campus on a you know 
when there hasn't been protests for a long time, part of normal, there's still yeah, normal so, life. So that's when they talk about the increasing yeah. uh, militarization of campuses. But so private security, you know, just sort of infringing on people's what they feel like is their rights and their peaceful rights to demonstrate. To demonstrate and to then the police often sort of ending protests or trying to crack down on protests with, you know, things like stun guns, rubber bullets, not stun guns, sorry, um, stun grenades, uh, rubber bullets and, and, you know, arresting protesters sort of, um, effectively on mass or by, by the dozens where they just grab them and throw them into the van, throw them into the van and often quite violently. Yeah. Um, and, I think the effect of that is, I think what you're saying is definitely a hardening of student attitudes towards, towards both the state institutions yeah. that they're represented by, which is the SAPS on the ground here, towards, perhaps towards the minister himself, particularly towards their institutions, but then most importantly towards the security and police. Yeah. So it just leads to sort of a, a, a cycle of increased violence, I think, and, and I think there are key there are key things i think on all sides that must be done to really try to avoid this situation where where things can 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 get get out get out of control and we can see both both um students hurt and arrested where it might not have been necessary as well as um property uh, being damaged and i think that could be avoided or, or i think university management has a very strong responsibility to avoid that at all costs and try to resist or, or limit um, how often it tries to get the police on campus or the extent of its private security on campus. Mm. I think they also need to take cognizance of the fact that students have, like what I was saying before, there's, you know, different groups and different interests of students and to ensure that in discussions, everybody's involved. So don't just, don't just bring the SRC leaders into a meeting thinking that they're going to represent all of the yeah. students, because although they were elected elected as leaders, there might be a smaller group of students that is very fundamentally um, um, committed to an issue, and they will keep on protesting about it regardless of what the SRC says. We've seen that at different campuses. Oh, yeah. So I think everyone has to be involved in this conversation. And then I think from the police side, I think that they have to, by all means... Um, Try not to to use force on, on students to to um, to sort of flare up the issues. So I think that they really have to try and show show constraint because when when police really do show, sorry restraint when when police show restraint and you know try to sort of make sure that this situation is safe and that people you know that no one's going to get hurt or too many law, like laws aren't being broken. Um, I've seen protests where students are able to go around peacefully and they're not trying to hurt anyone. Yeah, we also kind of lose steam in a sense where it's, like yeah. it's not a fight. That's right. You can demonstrate and protest, but it's not a fight with, with another you know, entity. It's not a fight. It's a protest. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And so, so, so I think they have to really, really try to show restraint um, from, from their side. Okay. We were going to try and squeeze in one more topic. We've got about three minutes to go. I think it's important. You think it's important? Okay. So it's something you've written on quite recently. It's, it's about, uh, it starts from this move of of two thousand um, sort of psychiatric patients being moved uh, from this one place called Life SCD many to over a hundred other NGOs, and we're hearing stories and and and, and jumping from that, we're hearing stories of at least thirty six psychiatric patients having been declared dead. So I think the big question is just what what's happened in between. We have a move and suddenly people are dead. So it's like what's what's happening in there? Yeah. So I think the key thing is yeah. that. Um, 
government ended their contract with the health provider life as a demand for for some of them, the Gauteng government that is for some of the uh, most serious case, cases of um um most serious sort of psychiatric um, yeah. cases and to save money they they said that they're going to spread these almost 2000 out through either home care or through all these NGOs yeah. Um, for a long time, they were, w- were warned that these NGOs aren't ready and this would be disastrous. And essentially what we've seen is that many of these NGOs, where they've gone, um, were ill-equipped and ill-prepared. And even one of them that I visited, I visited their two um, addresses. I mean, yeah, so there's one that had just, just been registered. It, like it was just created. Just it was, and, and they were just houses. You know, they were, and this is where, where the, it seems like the most people have died. And it was shocking and i think the key thing is now where there must be a strong investigation to find out exactly what happened into this issue because we're literally talking about the most like this is literally the most vulnerable people in society and we have to find out what's happened and who's culpable i mean it's crazy i mean just chatting to you mentioned you know visiting the place and you're seeing psychiatric patients outside it looks like they're not being cared for and then we hear, you know, them being reported dead at morgues and the families aren't being notified. And it just sounds like whichever way you look at it, like a really, really complete mismanagement of this move by government. And hopefully they can somehow provide some kind of answers for us and for the families of these people. It's an extremely horrible situation and government has committed to investigating the issue. And I think there'll be a lot of pressure um, on the provincial health department and as well the national um, health ombudsman to to really explain what happened here. Okay. We'll tweet links to all the stories that we've mentioned so you can you know fill the gaps where we haven't. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to download and share the podcast, the Daily Maverick Show, one to two PM every week. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, one to two PM on Cliffcentral.com. This is Cliffcentral.com.